Uh, well, before uh, we jump into the text, I want to lead us today into a special time of prayer um, for um, BCPC, Boston Center for Pregnancy Choices. Many churches today um, will be highlighting today a Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And the purpose of this is to highlight our commitment to the sanctity of life and the protection of the unborn. And so theologically, we believe that all humans are image bearers, created in the image of God. And so as a result, they are great worth before God. And so what sanctity of human life is about, it's, it's about our desire to protect, to defend, and to love all humans beginning with conception. And so one of the ways we do this, we financially support the Boston Center for Pregnancy Choices. They're located downtown Boston, and this is on their website. This is what they say their goal is. Their goal is to help individuals make informed decisions about unplanned or unwanted pregnancies and provide support after those decisions are made. And so here's what I want to call us to. I want to call us to pray in three ways today. I want you to listen here with me. First, Let's pray for BCBPC and their staff. You can imagine, man, daily, probably weekly, they're having really hard conversations and, and just in need of much wisdom and guidance as they engage in those conversations. Um, second, I want us to pray for women and men who are riddled by guilt and shame over bad behavior unkept promises, and lapses in judgment. They need the hope of the gospel. And so I recognize even as we're, we're committing to defend the unborn that there's a lot of people that have experienced brokenness. And so here's how I want us to pray. I want us to pray that they would look to Jesus and see that the gospel is for them, that there is complete and total forgiveness in Jesus Christ. I want us to pray that those who have turned to trust in Jesus, that their identity would be shaped not by their sin, but that by them being a beloved child of the Most High King. We want to pray for that. And then third, I want to ask us to pray for us as a church. If we are going to say we want to defend the unborn, we've got to be willing to say we're going to grow in compassion and strive to be holistically pro-life, which means being ready to provide spiritual and material support for women, families, and babies in need, including foster care and adoption, which is going to be the natural outproduct of that. So I know this is heavy. I want to lead us as a pastor in prayer for these three items. I invite you to join me today. Father, God, we come before you as the creator and author of life. And so God, we thank you for, for organizations like the Boston Center for Pregnancy Choices that's helping women and men, families, engage in really hard conversations around unwarranted, unwanted pregnancies. God, would you grant them much wisdom and guidance and compassion as they have these hard conversations. God, we pray that as they have these conversations, you would fill them with the hope of the gospel and pointing these, these people to Jesus, the author of life. God, we pray for these men and women that are going through hard choices. God, and God, I pray that, 
that you would lead them to even make hard decisions by faith and trusting you as the good, good God, as the creator, that they would entrust themselves to you, that, that even those that have made bad choices, God, I pray that they would not be overcome by guilt, by shame, by their past, that they would be able to look with eyes of faith to you and see that there is complete and total forgiveness in Jesus. He died for all of our sins, including theirs. God, I pray for those that have walked this hard journey and maybe have not made a wise choice, that their, their past would not shape their current identity in Christ that they, by eyes of faith, would, would be able to receive the forgiveness and see themselves as a beloved child of the Most High King. God, that you would comfort them today by the presence of your Holy Spirit. And God, I ask, would you give us grace as a church? God, would we grow in compassion and also a willingness to sacrifice much to holistically care as we defend the unborn. Because when they're born, there's, there's a lot of, of births that are going to kind of come into hard situations where they need help and support and families to foster or families to adopt. And, and we want to be for that as well. And so, God, God, would you just help us? We need your grace in this today. And we ask your favor and you to guide us in the power of Christ. In his name, amen. Amen. Well, grab your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. If you've got one of the Bibles that we've provided, that's on page 1014. Last week, Tanner preached through verses 3 to 5, and he challenged us to let our tomorrow empower our today. The living hope, the inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, that salvation, that comes in and empowers our day. And, and in our passage today, Peter's going to give us another way that our tomorrow should impact our today. It should produce inexpressible joy. Now, when we think about this word joy, what is joy? Joy is the source or cause of great pleasure, happiness, or delight. Blaise Pascal, a, um, a great French mathematician, physicist, and, and philosopher once wrote, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. This is the motive of every action of every man. We all seek happiness. The longer that I live, the longer and more I agree with Pascal. We all long for joy and happiness, and this is what drives us in most in life. In fact, the reason that I'm a Christian and, and, and a part of my story is that I went and chased joy and happiness. And I came away with nothing to satisfy me. And so I looked to the gospel, and what I found in the gospel and what I found in Jesus Christ was that there was a God who was the true source of full and eternal joy. Jesus writes this in John 15, 11. He says, these things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you 
and that your joy may be full. But what Peter raises in our text today is the relationship between joy and persecution and suffering. In other words, can I still find joy in the midst of suffering and trials? That's the question. And I want us to go to the text today. 1 Peter chapter 1. And I'm actually going to start back in verse 3. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The answer that we see Peter give to our question is yes, you can have joy even in the midst of suffering and trials. And what Peter calls them to do is the challenge that I want to give us all today. It is this, cultivate inexpressible joy even in the midst of suffering. Peter gives us two main ways that we can cultivate inexpressible joy in the midst of suffering. The first one is this. We are to look to the future salvation to come. Go back to verse 6 here with me. And we're looking at 6 and 9 today. Verse 6 says this. In this you rejoice. So we hit pause here. What does this refer to? What, what he's doing is he's, he's, he's taking in this you rejoice and going back to verses 3 through 5. It refers to that, that whole section there that's fo- focusing on our end time hope, our, our tomorrow as grounds for joy today. You can rejoice because of what is to come. That living hope, that inheritance, that final salvation gives us much joy today. In this, you rejoice. And then he picks up this theme of rejoicing down in verse 8. Jim, down there. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Let me unpack verses 8 and 9 here for us real quick. First of all, he starts with another affection of the Christian life, love. Verse 8. Though you have not seen him, 
you love him. The, the audience that Peter's writing to had not laid eyes on the historical Jesus as Peter had. They had never physically seen him. Yet it says they loved him. They had a, a love and an affection. He was very precious to them. He continues, though you do not now see him, you believe in him. Another ca characteristic here. They have love and that there's faith. Now notice, before he mentions faith here, he says, though you do not, and he adds this word now, though you do not now see him. Now could be read here as not yet. Though you have not yet seen him, it, it, he, he's given us clues here. There's anticipation. We're going to see Jesus one day. They're going to see Jesus one day. We've already heard the revelation of Jesus, the living hope. The, like, what is that hope? It's we're going to be with God. We're going to see him face to face. So they still, not yet, they don't see him yet. With the eyes of faith, they believe in him. They believed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. This message that had come to them, they believed it. But then we see this mention of joy going on down in verse 8. That you do not now see him, you believe in him, and you rejoice with joy. We see it mentioned twice. There's a rejoicing with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Think about these words here and how he's describing the joy that is in their life. First of all, this word inexpressible, it's the only use of this word in the New Testament. Some translate it as indescribable. You rejoice with joy that is it's inexpressible. It is indescribable. In other words, words are not adequate to fully explain and express the joy that Jesus brings. Can I get an amen? There's nothing in this world that can compare. It's inexpressible. It is indescribable. And then he gives this other word. It is filled with glory. Glory has a long history. You see, if you read through the Bible, you're going to hear, you go all the way up back to Moses, who's going to say, God, show me your glory. We think about the presence of God in the temple, and it, like the glory of God, like everything that is great. Like we use this word glory to describe things that are glorious, that are indescribable. You go take your car and you go drive up Mount Washington to get your bumper sticker and you get to the top and you look around and what is the word that describes what you see? You, you try to put words in your mouth and you, it, it was glorious. You see, he's combining these words here, inexpressible, filled with glory, to describe what we have here in the hope of the gospel. Thomas Schreiner in his commentary says this, the joy believers experience is a taste of heaven. It is an anticipation of the end. This is what the gospel brings. Now I want to take a little detour for a second. One of the things I love about Redemption Hill is that on most Sundays, there are people here that would say, you know what, I'm not sure I would call myself a Christian, but, but I'm exploring. 
I'm interested in what you guys have to say. And so I want to speak to those of you that are here today that you might say you would fall into one of these two camps. One of these, you would say, you know what? I'm here today. I'm not calling myself a Christian, but man, my life is miserable. I have very little joy or happiness in life. I'm longing for something to give me meaning and joy in life. I want, I want to say to you, like, this is the hope of the gospel. Like, God has come to satisfy you among, among anything that this earth can satisfy. Like, come to him. That's what the point of this is today. But another group of you sitting here today might describe yourself this way. Hey, John, I'm relatively content. I'm satisfied, and I'm happy in life. Why do I need Jesus? For the most part, you would say your life feels just fine without God. What would I say to you today? Here's what I would say. First, there's more to life than earthly happiness and temporal joy. I'm not going to deny that, that, that there are some joys that we can experience that are just a part of God's common grace in life. But the point is, is that they're temporal. Earthly happiness may be great, but it's fleeting. Earthly pleasure promises more, but often disappoints. Could it be that temporal joy now is a pointer to something greater, that you are actually made for fullness of joy? And so one of my favorite Bible verses is Psalm 1611, that that in my story, God really used to open my eyes to who he is and, and what I can find in the gospel. And it says this. It says, God, you have made known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so here's what I would say that, that God offers. And it's found in this verse. Fullness of joy. He's not just offering temporary or a little bit of joy. In the gospel, there is joy forevermore. In other words, it doesn't disappoint. There's no ending. There, there's no like max to the joy. It, like Jesus said, I, I've come that your joy might be full. But second, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. It never ends. Forevermore is pleasure that is not fleeting. And so I would just, I would plead with you that you're like, hey, why do I need Jesus? It's because at some point, your joy is not going to last forever, and it's going to disappoint. Jesus never does. And that is the hope of the gospel that we see Peter unpacking here in these first few verses. And you know what's astounding, what Peter notes? The context here is suffering. Go back to verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Now let me ask you this. When you go through suffering and trials, what does your life look like? What does it produce in your life? What we see here is he's describing what it produced. It was love. It was faith. It was Joy, inexpressible, filled with glory. Suffering didn't crush or destroy them or make them miserable. 
And don't get me wrong, their outward circumstances were very grievous. Look at that in verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Look, suffering and trials is not food. Who enjoys this? No, like, there's nothing intrinsic, intrinsically joyful about a trial of suffering. That's not what he's saying. They were grieved. There was pain. There was brokenness. There was hurt. Yet, inwardly, they were full of love, faith, and inexpressible and glorious joy, which should lead us to ask this question. How could they live this way? Verse 9 answers it. Look at the text in verse 9. At the end of describing this joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, Peter writes, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Another way to describe this word obtaining is it's, it's you're receiving. You're receiving the outcome of of your faith. He's talking about a present reality. Now, this salvation is to come, right? The living hope, the inheritance that's undefiled, the revelation of Jesus, the, that salvation in the future that we bring into the present and receive, and it changes our today. The tomorrow changes our today. What's it they were receiving? They were receiving the outcome of their faith, the salvation of their souls. This word souls here, he's referring to to the whole person. He's not saying it's just your body and then your soul. He's describing the whole being here, the salvation of body and mind. And this word salvation takes us back to those verses three to five that Tanner last week unpacked for us. So what's so great about this salvation? Later on in our study in 1 Peter, we're gonna get to chapter three, verse 18. And it's gonna say this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. In short, the reason Jesus came is because apart from Jesus, you are separated from God. What's so great and good about salvation is you're with God. For all of eternity, he is the one that satisfies. It's not that I get to live in eternity and, and see my, my relatives that have died. Like even though as, as good as that might be, what's so great about heaven and eternal life is God. You were made for him. They had not seen Jesus with their physical eyes. But as Jesus said in John, when Thomas looked in his hands, he said, you've believed because you've seen. Blessed are those who believe and have not seen. The churches that he's writing to had not seen, but they had seen. God had opened their eyes and their hearts to see and treasure and see who Jesus comes. And it says, they are now gonna receive, obtain the outcome of, of their faith. And let me just highlight this word faith. There's no doubt that they believed. It is essential 
when we hear this news of the gospel, our responsibility is to respond in repentance and faith. They had believed, and the result of their faith is that now they were going to be with Jesus. They saw Jesus as the one who secured for them an eternal salvation. And now check this out. The greatness of their eternal reward made their present suffering seem small in comparison. No matter what sufferings or trials I may face or you may face, nothing can keep me from seeing and enjoying Jesus forever. So here's the point of this, this, this looking at the future salvation to come. I can look past my present sufferings to the great reward that's to, that's to come, and that gives me strength and endurance, and even I can find joy in the midst of suffering now. I can take heart because of the sure salvation to come. That's the first way that we cultivate inexpressible joy. We look to the great reward to come that is secured to us by Jesus. The second way that we cultivate inexpressible joy is to recognize God's good design for suffering. This is different than the first truth. In the first truth, we look beyond our sufferings to the hope that that's to come that produces joy now. In this truth, it's about how sufferings and trials are actually part of God's design and plan to increase our joy and delight in him and prepare us for the salvation to come. You guys with me? On the first one, we look past to the end. Now we look in it and see God's design. How do I see in this text that sufferings and trials are a part of God's design? Look at verse 6. Go back to verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. We see a few truths here. One is just a reminder that suffering and trials are temporary. What he's not saying is that your suffering is going to be really short. He's saying in comparison to eternity, it's just a little while. But we see another truth. We see this phrase here, though now for a little while, if necessary. Why does Peter drop those two words in here? The point is that the sufferings that they are experiencing are actually necessary. They are a part of the will of God for their good. He's going to come back to this in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19. Look at this. 1 Peter 4, 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to what? To what? To God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. He's going to make it explicit later. You're suffering according to God's will. Look, this is the consistent teaching in the New Testament. There is no promise. Now, you may say, John, like you're contradicting yourself. I'm not hanging here with me. I'm saying that there is fullness of joy in Jesus, yes, but I'm not promising an easy life. What I'm saying in the hope of the gospel is that no matter what you face, you can find joy because of God and what he's done and even doing in them. Now the sufferings and trials they were facing 
for the most part, what Peter's talking about are not the sufferings that are common to all of us as humans. Whether I'm a follower of Christ or not, like we, we face sickness. We, face, we're, we still face physical death. What he's talking about for the most part in 1 Peter are the trials and sufferings that we face as a result of being followers of Jesus. As a result of, of seeking first the kingdom of God and living a distinctly Christian life. Just think with me for a second. What trials do you face as a result of being a follower of Jesus? I'll give a, I'll give a few potential here. Does anyone face workplace or social isolation? What do I mean by that? You're excluded from social experiences or community-based organizations because you're perceived or assumed as being odd or not fitting. Oh, they're a follower of Jesus, and so there's isolation or exclusion. What about this? Direct or indirect mocking or jeers from others due to going against the cultural grain. Look, look, there's no shying away that Jesus calls us to follow him and live a particular kind of life, which includes things like sexual ethics, the way we use our words, our language, materialism, substance abuse, integrity and honesty. If, if you're going to be a person who's going to be honest and be, be truthful and a person of integrity, you're probably going to face some type of pressure or persecution. Pressure to give in or persecution because you're not doing what everybody else does. What about this? You face comments from family because of your decision to prioritize proximity to Redemption Hill Church in Medford. Living in Medford buying a home in Medford. You're saying, I want to go all in with the mission and what God's doing at Redemption Hill. And as a result of that, the world doesn't explain how you're spending your money, where you're deciding to live, and the many decisions you're making in life. Now, as we talk about sufferings and we talk about God's design, let me give a few caveats. Just because suffering is a part of God's will doesn't minimize the evil actions of others who inflict suffering. It doesn't excuse it. But there's this mystery here, here. I mean, look at the cross. Did sin happen that put Jesus to the cross? Yes. The most unjust thing is that, the, that Jesus was crucified. There was sin, and yet that was a part of the will of God. And so what you see here is these tensions between God's sovereign plan and yet human responsibility. Go read Acts 2 and 4. You see them both in tension there. It was the sovereign plan of God to send Jesus that he'd be crucified. And he says, but you killed them. You killed him. And they're still guilty. And there's no tension there. And so we want to affirm both. So it doesn't minimize the evil actions of others. Second, as I've already alluded to, it doesn't mean that sufferings are supposed to be enjoyable in and of themselves. Suffering is painful. The point that Peter's making is that suffering is valuable because of the benefits it brings. So you may ask, okay, John, what are those benefits? Well, verse 7 tells us. Look at verse 7. He gives us 
the reason why sufferings are part of God's plan. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter explains God's purpose for suffering by talking about gold. And what does he tell us about gold? He highlights two things. First, he just affirms gold. What's he say here? He says, precious than gold. It is like almost universally accepted that gold is a very precious and a value. We get that. But yet he says, even as precious as gold may be, it is temporal. How much more valuable then is your faith that has been tested? The second way he draws on this analogy is he helps us think about how gold is actually authenticated and refined. More precious than gold that perishes, though that it is what? Tested by fire. How, does, how is gold refined? You heat it up. You've heard of like the refining fire. You th- like you've got this crucible that gold is put in and it's heated. And when it's heated and reaches a certain temperature, what happens to all of the impurities? They rise to the top and it separates what is pure gold and what needs to be removed. And he says in the same way, as Thomas Schreiner notes, your sufferings function as the crucible for faith. God is going to authenticate your faith and he is going to purify your faith. Let's talk about the first one first. Suffering authenticates our faith. We see this phrase here in verse 7 that says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, God brings trials and suffering to purify our faith and demonstrate its genuineness. If, if you're interested in doing some reading on this section here, Jonathan Edwards wrote a book called Religious Affections that basically the very beginning jumps off of these three verses here, six through nine. And he says this about this, about this phrase. He says, true virtue never appears so lovely as when it is most oppressed. And the divine excellency of real Christianity is never exhibited with such advantage as when under the greatest trials. Then it is true that true faith appears much more precious than gold. You take your faith and you throw it through the fire of suffering and you come out on the other end and what it has done, it is even more so to resolve and verify the faith that is genuine and real in your life and in what God is doing. And then he, he, he combines it with this phrase in verse 7 at the end. He says, may be found, your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The point here is that he's focusing on the value of genuine faith on the day of judgment. Jesus is coming back one day. 
and we're all going to give an account to him. Now, in one sense, we talk about salvation like when I believe in him, I say I'm saved because I don't have to fear that day because I've already placed my faith in him and been forgiven. But in another very real sense, Jesus hasn't come back yet. Like the day of judgment is in the future. It's still to come. And so the way that I walk in not fearing that day is in faith. And so he's saying when your faith is tested as genuine, the result is when Jesus comes back and we stand before him, it's not going to be condemnation. It's going to be praise and glory and honor. You're going to receive the reward. This is the same way James actually argues. You know, if you were to go to James chapter 1, he says, Count it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know what? The testing of your faith produces, and he continues on, right? He's talking about God's sovereign plan in using trials to make who you are today. But later on in verse 12 of chapter one, he says, and those who've endured will receive the crown of life. It's this reward. We look to the end and what our faith will receive. And so suffering has a way to authenticate our faith, the tested genuineness of it, but it also has a way to purify our faith. And here's my last truth. God uses suffering to wean me off of myself and cast me onto his grace and power. And I want to use a parallel text to help us with this. It's in 2 Corinthians And it's when Paul's unpacking the thorn of the flesh that he received. Listen to this. Paul says, so to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. Let me just hit pause here. Do you know what Satan wants to do in suffering and trials? He wants to destroy you. Go read 1 Peter 5. There's a lion that's prowling around looking for someone to devour. Satan wants to destroy your faith. God wants to increase it. So it says here, a messenger of Satan harassed me to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So now look what Paul says. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I'm, in, I'm strong. How many of you today want to go say, hey, God, would you send me some of this so that you would crush me so that your power would be more evident and real in my life? But that's what God does in trials and sufferings. And so John Piper in Desiring God, he's got a chapter, really good chapter on suffering. Reflecting on suffering, he says this. He says, this is God's universal purpose for all Christian suffering. More contentment in God, less satisfaction in self in the world. You get that? More contentment in God, 
less satisfaction in self in the world. He says, I've never heard anyone say the really deep lessons of life have come to me through times of ease and comfort. But I've heard strong saints say, Every significant advance I ever made in grasping the depths of God's love and growing deep with him has come through suffering. So here's what I want to tell you today. I don't know what suffering or persecution you may be in the middle of. But God wants to wean you off of yourself so that you cast yourself Upon him. It's what later on in 1 Peter 5, Peter's gonna say, Cast all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Your suffering is not a detour to God's plan for your life, it is his plan to make you the person that he wants you to be. It's his plan so that the power of God be may, may, may be more increasingly evident in your life. We can rejoice in sufferings because we've endured with the presence and power of Christ, and our faith has been proven as genuine. It's evident that Christ is real in our lives. When I started this sermon, I asked this question, can I still find joy even in the midst of suffering and trials? The answer is yes. But I want to answer one last question. What do we do when we desire joy? but it's lacking. Anybody there? I want to humbly share with you a few things. The first one is this. Be real with God and confess your joylessness. Let me tell you a secret. He already knows. So like, you don't have to pretend that it's not there. Just be real with God. Second, Cry out to God in prayer. I love it when the psalmist said, Psalm 51, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Or Psalm 90, verse 14, satisfy me in the morning with your steadfast love that I may rejoice and be glad. I mean, these are prayers. The psalmist is praying and asking God, give me joy. Third, seek after God in his word. Psalm 19 says this, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. We, we continue to seek after God even as we, we wait for the desires to come and pray that God would give them. All right, I got two more. Four. Live in community. I love in Philippians chapter one, Paul says this. He's debating. He's like, should, he's facing death. He's like, should I go and be with Christ or should I stay here? And he says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says, it's far better if I were to go because I would be with Christ. But he concludes this. He says, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. He's laboring for the joy with others that they would fight for joy, that they would have joy. 
So live in community. Do this together. Spend time with people that have a deep sense of joy. And then finally, be patient and wait. We started off by singing a song. I forget the lyrics. When darkness seems to hide his face, what? I'll rest on his unchanging grace. You may think that God is absent, but he sees perfectly clear and he's present. So be patient and wait for the Lord. He will hear and he will respond. So no matter where you are today, let's go to the Lord seeking that he would fill us with inexpressible joy filled with glory. Let's pray. Father, God, we thank you that in the gospel, you've come to satisfy us beyond our, how we could ever imagine. God, even producing in us a joy that we can't even express or explain to the world except to say it is a foretaste of heaven. God, we long for more of that. Increase our joy. Help us to rejoice. God, I I don't know all of the individual sufferings and trials people are facing, but God, I pray today, help us to cast ourselves upon you. God, it's not that we would show ourselves to be stronger. We would show you to be more powerful. Help us. Help us not to be conceited as Paul prayed. God, if, if, and I'll pray this, God, if you need to send some trials to crush some of us so that we would more rely on you, God, do that. Because we want to be like Christ. We want your power more and more displayed in our church and in our lives. So God, have your way in us. Help us to seek joy in Christ and help us to help others find joy in Christ. We pray.